Word. Uh, if you have a Bible, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 4 today. Uh, Matthew 4, we'll be reading across the book of Matthew, but, but first, I got to, I don't know, I didn't take my keys out of pocket earlier. Um, too many keys, and when you grow up in the slim fit pants generation like me, that doesn't work. Lindsay always fusses with me because I lose my keys all the time. I don't like to carry them in my pockets. Cargo shorts are good for keys, but not jeans, unless you big jeans with big pockets, but don't have those. So, um, sorry about that. That's a little bit of a little bit of a detour. Uh, we have a Bible. Matthew 4 is our text for today, and uh, we're going to start off by kind of talking about the season that we're in, the week that we are uh, in. Actually, today is a very important day in history. Maybe you, you think Tuesday is, and Tuesday is a big day in history, but actually today is maybe as important, um, because behind every important day or a some other important days that led up to it. Um, so we're looking forward to celebrating Independence Day just a couple of days away, but maybe you didn't know this, that July 2nd is actually the day that Congress signed the resolution of independence. You've heard of the Declaration of Independence, but before there was a declaration, there was a resolution, which Congress, really all they're good for, um, is uh, sign, write a bunch of long documents and, and, and write it, uh, debating and uh, lobbying uh, bills together. So Congress signed what is called the Resolution of Independence on July 2nd, 1776. So on this day, 247 years ago, uh, proposed by a Virginian congressman, Richard Lee. It's often called the Lee Resolution. Uh, this is basically Congress saying, okay, we're, we're actually going to do this. Uh, they had spent the month of June uh, debating and drafting a declaration that would communicate their intent to both the colonists here in America and the monarchy in England. Uh, Richard Lee was the one who had the guts to go on the floor and say, I think we should actually do this. Uh, he's not a name that we hear among the other founders of our country, but uh, he's the guy that, that stood up and put his, uh, put his skin on the line. Uh, but on July 2nd, the Second Continental Congress voted to approve the resolution, uh, essentially approving and declaring America's independence from England, which is basically uh, America's open rebellion against England, because we at the time were colonists beholden to King George and, and, and the English monarchy. So, of course, nobody would have known that this wasn't, uh, that, that this was this was decided, uh, that wasn't in the Congressional Hall in Philadelphia that day, which is why they were also working on a document to basically uh, mass produce and, and print and send around the, the colonies uh, to express the declaration and to spread this decision uh, as well as the reasons behind it. So they approved the decision on July 2nd. Then two days later, on July 4th, they finished the draft of the Declaration of Independence, uh, which was copied and spread uh, and posted all over uh, the colonies. So uh, Thomas Jefferson needed a few more days to, to finish up uh, the famous doc, uh, document, the famous declaration. But John Adams, of course, future president and one of the f congressmen who was in the hall that day, uh, John Adams uh, is, is uh, famously, uh, he wrote a lot of letters to his wife, Abigail, um, uh, who, who's back home in Virginia. He wrote letters to her basically serving as journals of his time um, helping to establish the country. And his letters have been preser preserved. Uh, and John Adams, uh, on the eve of uh, July 2nd, so on July 1st, he's writing uh, this letter to Abigail about the next day. Uh, John Adams looked forward and he mused about how July 2nd, uh, not the 4th, July 2nd, he thought, hey, this day is going to be a special day and remembered for years to come. This is actually from a letter that he wrote to Abigail um, on July 1st. 
The second day of July, 1776, will be the most memorable epoch in the history of America. I'm apt to believe that it will be celebrated by succeeding generations as the great festival, great anniversary festival. It ought to be commemorated as the day of deliverance by solemn acts of devotion to God Almighty. It ought to be solemnized with pomp and parade, shows, games, sports, guns, bells, bonfires, illuminations from one end of the continent to the other from this time forward forevermore. His description is spot on, isn't it? He's just a couple days off. Uh, but, uh, obviously, he thought that the second would be remembered because the second was the day that they were actually going to pass this bill or sign this uh, or agree to do this, uh, to, to take this step. Uh, it makes sense why everyone gravitated toward the fourth because when they finished the document, the Declaration of Independence, and they begin to spread it and print it in newspapers and post it on town halls and taverns around the colonies, at the top of the Declaration is that famous date. You probably can't see it, but if you Google it, you can see it. On the top of the Declaration that was printed all around the colonies is in Congress, July 4th, 1776. So that's why John Adams had the description of our festivities right, but he just had the day a couple days uh, behind, uh, a couple days ahead. So on top of the Declaration is, of course, that famous date, July 4th, 1776, and that is the day that we celebrate that America declared its independence, even though it resolved to do so a couple days before. Now, don't be the person, please don't be that person at the cookout this, when, this Tuesday that pushes your glasses up and say, says, did you know it's really the second? Because nobody likes that person. I can be that person because I get to do this and people already say things about me. I'll be the person for you, but, but don't. Don't walk up to somebody and say, well, we should have done this on Sunday because nobody, nobody wants to, nobody wants to be that person. Okay, I thought it was a cool story that you'd appreciate since we were in church today on the second. It made sense. So with our minds on our country's birthday, I thought that it'd be appropriate for us to discover or rediscover the inspiration behind the declaration and resolutions that were drafted those 247 years ago. And I think it has something to say to us today in light of who we are, where we are, and, and what we are called to do as Christians. Uh, we don't have to dig too deep to find the inspiration because it's written right in the opening paragraphs of the Declaration of Independence. You've probably read it before, but if you haven't, I'll remind you a couple of those lines. When in the course of human, human events, it becomes necessary, that's a big word, for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another to assume among the powers of the earth, to the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. So pause. So the, the premise or the inspiration behind this declaration is that we feel like it's necessary. We feel like the law of nature, and that was their fancy 17th, uh, 1700s way of saying, we feel like that it's God's will, that it's something that God has intended on all of us to do, and that we are compelled and motivated by our knowledge of God and who he is and what he intends. We feel like it's necessary that we do something. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. We hold these truths to be self-evident. So again, this is their way of saying, because of our beliefs, because of the way we understand people and the way we understand that God created us all in his image, that we believe this is just common sense. 
that it, clearly England doesn't believe it, and clearly many monarchies around the world don't believe it, and cl plenty won't always believe it, but we, gathered in this congressional hallway and all across our colonies, we believe, based on our faith and based on our community and the way we see the world, that these are just self-evident truths. As in, if you, you don't have to think too long and too hard to come up with these ideas. But again, these aren't self-evident. These are learned. As Christians, we believe they're self-evident because we have learned them and they, they seem so obvious. But many don't know these and many haven't ever heard of these or haven't ever experienced these. But the colonists, so ingrained in their faith and so ingrained in these convictions, they said these truths are self-evident that all people are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable, unalienable rights, among them being life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So what jumps off the page to me, and maybe to you, is this sense of motivation, this sense of compulsion. Something was driving them to do this. They weren't forced to do this. By no means, they lost their lives doing this. And many of them would never see their families again. Many of them would, would lose much of the privileges they knew as, as colonists under the monarchy. But they felt like they had to do something. They felt obligated to do something. You know, as Americans, this same sense of obligation to protect and ensure and advocate for freedom and justice often wells up in us. It's the reason why you're passionate about how you vote and the way you believe our country should go in because you believe that, hey, I as a citizen have an obligation to, to ensure and advocate for freedom for me, for my family, for my future, uh, and for the kids that come after us. Uh, it wells up in us and our nation's foundation beckons us to uphold these self-evident truths. But church... The reason why I think this is super relevant for us today is that our consciences are wired not just to this foundation that we have as a country, but our consciences are wired to an even greater calling, aren't they? We have an even greater and a much greater sense of obligation over us with regard to the kingdom that resides over our earthly home and regarding the kingdom that will one day be our eternal home. And allow me just to brag on the folks that served this past week, and this goes to anybody that contributed and prayed and supported what we do, but especially those that were here in the trenches. This is never more on display than during vacation Bible school at a local church. Uh, VBS, by very definition, is a labor of love. As in, on paper, it's a money pit. On paper, it's a time sink. Uh, out the windshield, as it approaches, it's lost time, but in motion and in hindsight, it is one of the greatest investments a church can ever make, and it is one of the greatest acts of service a Christian can ever participate in. But do you know why we do it? And why we do anything that seems to be a, a costly, sacrificial service uh, as Christians? Do you know why we do it? Do you know why across history, hundreds of thousands of churches and Christians pour out their resources uh, after resources and give time after time, hours upon hours, and money upon money, money, monies upon monies? Do you know why, not just for VBS, but for any mission outreach alone, do you know why Christians line up, have lined up throughout the ages, and invested and invested and poured out and poured out and give and give and give and give and receive nothing in return? Do you know why we do this? Do you know why so many believers enlist and enroll in any kind of mission, whether in your neighborhood or around the world, in which there is no net gain, rather losses in every category, from time, energy, financially? Because they are. Because we are. 
driven by a sense of obligation that supersedes all rationale, all reason, and all excuses. Ministry at its core is a nonprofit as as nonprofit can get. Yet for those involved and those invested are in, who are entrenched in it, they will tell you and we will tell you, I will tell you, there's nothing more satisfying and more fulfilling. Are there frustrating moments? Of course. Are there times where you wonder if it's worth it? Of course. They always creep in. But greater than those whispers of doubt and discouragement is a passion rooted in confidence and purpose and resilience. Every single day, every single Sunday, every event, Christians unanimously declare that we must, we are compelled to, by truths that to us are self-evident. But we notice so many, they are unknown and unlearned. Which is why we serve. It's why we give. It's why we lay down every other pressing matter. Set aside other desirable opportunities for something that many question and criticize and scoff at. The founders of this country were driven by something that we call in the church a sense of alt. A must. And that same must drives the church in weeks that we just experienced. Like in weeks that we just experienced here. Throughout church history, especially in the New Testament days, Christians referred to this must as their, as their divine obligation, their divine accountability, their divine responsibility. Not, a, not a, a duty that was a burden at all, but a privilege, something that they desired to do above everything else. Most famously, the Apostle Peter testified in court when the authorities were attempting to silence the followers of Jesus and literally beginning to kill the followers of Jesus who were proclaiming his name and building his movement that even though it made little to no sense to continue to promote Jesus after the very same government killed him, Peter and John and his brothers and his disciples, they just couldn't stop. On one occasion, Peter says, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. Guys, I hear it. I know. Hey, you want to kill us? That's fine. Now go ahead if you have to. But we can't stop. That something inside of us just won't let us stop. We, uh, we cannot help but to speak what we have seen and heard with our eyes and our ears. And then later on when he is told point blank, do not ever preach in the name of Jesus and mention his resurrection again. Peter says defiantly, we must obey God rather than men. Now, I want to make it clear. This is not just Peter thumbing his nose at authorities. This is Peter saying, we've chosen to follow a greater kingdom. We are not marching to the beat of this world. We're not listening to the intuitions of our gut. We are leaning into God's calling, God's greater plan that goes against our own instincts, that goes against natural desires and common sins. We are following God's plan because we know no other option. We must. Divine obligation is in all of us. It is necessary that we obey God. If you're with us last week, we talked about the two kingdoms that exist in this world. The kingdoms of man and the kingdoms of God. The kingdom of God. The kingdom of man, since the dawn of man, has always tried to shirk its responsibility and its accountability to God. The kingdom of this world, since the fall, have repeatedly turned inwardly and turned away from God. The Bible describes the kingdoms of man as beastly. They plot along, they make a mess, and blame it on somebody else. 
The story told in the Bible and across history is one that exposes mankind's inability to guide itself in the right direction and shows how God continually attempts to lead us in the right way. The church is the result of God's touchdown on this planet because Jesus came, God in the flesh, to introduce us to God's kingdom and establish it alongside and against the kingdoms of this world. But it wasn't a takeover. It wasn't a war, a declaration of war. Don't think of it in a physical sense. It was a spiritual touchdown. Jesus came to show us that God's reign was indeed over the world and its kingdoms and that his realm was not contained to heaven, not limited to some land far away, but he was and will always be present here on earth. And through Christ, through Jesus, we can know him and walk with him and follow him and live for him. The original followers of Jesus who heard him declare that God's kingdom was at hand. Matthew 4 verse 17, this is how Jesus came on the scene. He says, repent, as in change the way you're seeing the world, change the way you're perceiving the world. Feel a sense of, of, of guilt for living any other way, as in you realize that there's, there's, a, there's a right way and there's a wrong way. And unless I turn toward Jesus, that, that I'm, I'm walking in the wrong way. Repent means turn from one direction to the other. He says, and he introduces himself. He doesn't say, hey, I'm Jesus, I'm from heaven. He just says, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's near and accessible. It's clear by how the disciples that first heard him live their lives when he departed that they indeed had entered the kingdom and that they were driven by his kingdom and motivated and compelled by his kingdom, specifically in how they were focused on reaching people and leading people into his kingdom. You've got to think, why didn't they just keep it in themselves? Why didn't they just live out their days in, in, in privacy and in, in safety? They carried a sense of must like none other. They lived by no greater calling and no greater cause. And I think today it's important that we understand how they got there. How did they arrive at that place where they were so bold against their own instincts and against the better advice from the world? Just after this verse, where Jesus introduces the kingdom to the people of Galilee, he meets a group of fishermen who would become his original followers, Andrew, Peter, John, and James. We can read a snapshot of that story just below in verse 18. And Jesus, walking by the Sea of Galilee, saw two brothers, Simon called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. They immediately left their nets and followed him. Going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, in the boat with Zebedee, their father, mending their nets. He called them, and immediately they left their boat and their father and followed him. Now, if you read this, you might think it seems too simple. They just follow Jesus sight unseen. Thankfully, the Gospel of Luke gives us a little bit more insight. Luke tells us that Jesus pulled off a pretty wild miracle. Peter, Andrew, James, and John had had some bad luck, and they were disappointing their fathers in the business that they were operating in their stead. They, pull, they were having a couple of rough nights. They come in from one night, and they had caught nothing. And Jesus sees them down and out and says, Hey, go back out and cast your net on the other side of the boat, and let's see what happens. And they didn't think Jesus knew what he was talking about. He was a carpenter. He was a rabbi. What does he know about fishing? But they listened to him. 
Nonetheless, and they go out and the story goes, you know the story, they bring in more fish than the boat can hold. Peter goes in front of Jesus, falls down at his feet, overwhelmed, not just by what happened, but by who he clearly knows that Jesus is. And that's why they start following Jesus, because they wanted to see what else he might would do. But, as we just read, from the very beginning, while they followed him for the miracles, whether they knew it or not, whether they wanted it or not initially, he was leading them into ministry. It would become clear as Jesus began teaching about what following him meant, as he began teaching them about what life in his kingdom was like, that the miracles he worked again and again were mere previews of the miracles he would do and work in their hearts. I hope that that's clear because that's often misunderstood. The miracles he performed against nature and over the sea and over the waves and over the blind, over the sick, over the, the bread and the fish, those miracles, they seem mighty and they, oh, wow, we all and we wonder at them, but those miracles were really just previews of what he was going to do in hearts that seemed far more impossible to overcome the odds than these nature, natural miracles that he performed. And that's why, from Matthew 5 to Matthew 7, Jesus gives an incredible sermon where he lays out, lays down on, in front of them what following him looks like. You've heard of this sermon as the Sermon on the Mount, but I think if you took a course on this sermon, it would be called Kingdom Life 101. I think Jesus is saying, hey y'all, y'all want to know the basics of following me? I know y'all are expecting me to tell you about more miracles and more, all, more wonders and signs, but hey, we'll get to that. But here's what it means to follow me. I'm going to make y'all something. I'm going to turn y'all into fishermen. I'm going to turn y'all into disciple-making people. But first, y'all have to learn what it means to be disciples. And you've got to learn what it means to be in my kingdom. And I want to show you how I'm going to transform your lives. Now, they didn't sign up for this. They wanted to follow him to see more miracles. They wanted to see what else he might would do for them and give them. And he says, hey, I've got your attention. I've got some things to teach you. Now, let me say this. There are professing Christians who have clearly never read the basics because their version of Christianity is so, 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 so far off from what Jesus teaches as the entry-level course. You want to know where to start with Jesus? Matthew 5, 6, and 7 are the basics. If you can't get them, you probably shouldn't move on. That's how it works, right, in school. I want to run through very quickly and get a surface-level read of this Sermon on the Mount. And we're just going to look at the Beatitudes, as you've, as you've heard them called. And here's the gist. Everything Jesus lays down here goes against the worldly wisdom and natural human desire. It is meant to show us how different, how different our instinct is compared to what his new kingdom away is. It to show us how it operates on different terms of conditions. It's meant to instruct every one of us as to how we should measure our lives and keep us all in check with regard to how we are representing Jesus. Because what did this all start out with? Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. That's the goal here, right? You're going to follow me. I'll show you what that means. And as you follow me, you're going to make followers as well. So it's important they learn how to represent Jesus, how you communicate Jesus, because ultimately that's what Jesus wants to do through us. Use us to lead more people to him. It's essential that we get this right and present him in accurate light. This is what every follower of Jesus will be judged by. 
how did we follow him and how did we represent him to others? So Jesus has their attention after the miracle, chapter 5, verse number 1. He sees the multitudes. He goes up on a mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor. And that's where they all were like, Jesus, we are poor. We'd like to not be poor. We think we hope that you can make us not poor. This isn't a good way to start a sermon that keeps us coming back to you. But Jesus doesn't bat an eye. He doesn't budge. Blessed are the poor in spirit. You could add there, but the idea there is a, is a humility in the heart of a person who isn't after this world, isn't focused on this world, isn't rich from this world. Blessed are the poor, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He says, hey guys, the kingdom's at hand. The kingdom is here. You can enter into it. And he starts it off with, with such a provocative blessing. You know what he's saying here? Wealth and self-sufficiency do not equal favor and blessing in the kingdom of God. There are plenty who are wealthy and plenty who are self-sufficient, but that is not the mark of God's favor or God's blessing in his kingdom. Dependence on God is, as in, don't point at someone who has all they need and has all they want and don't need anyone as being favored or blessed. Point at someone who knows they need God and are at his feet and are dependent on him and do not at all rest on anything of this world. That's where blessing is found. That's where God's favor is found. Jesus followers, our goal is not to have all that we could ever want in this world, and those that do are not somehow more spiritual than others. Those who do have every, do not have everything are not farther from God than those that do. Those who realize this world cannot satisfy them and rely on God are the ones who get more of him. And if you are in God's kingdom, you know there's something greater than this world. Number two, verse four. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Jesus, I came to you so you would make me never have to mourn again. I came to you because I don't want to ever be upset. I don't want to ever be sad. I don't want to ever have any bad days. But Jesus says, hey, that's not how my kingdom works. Hardships and trials are not the absence of God's blessings, but opportunities to receive them. I told you that God's kingdom is different. Jesus' followers, God will bring us into trials. He, will, he doesn't protect us from all of them. He brings us into them so that we might receive a greater comfort that this world will never give. Blessed are those that are poor. Blessed are those that mourn. Verse 5, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, let me just give you a little bit of insight. In their world... Rome ruled with an iron fist. And if you were meek, you lost everything. If you were meek, you were trampled over, taken advantage of. If you were meek, you'd be left behind. Jesus says, the meek, not the mighty. Oh, you've heard of Rome? You've heard of Alexander the Great? You've heard of uh, you know, the, the kings of old from Babylon and Persia and Egypt? They were mighty men, but who remembers them now? The meek will be the ones remembered. The meek will be the ones that will be celebrated in history. Jesus' followers, 
We don't gain a better tomorrow by brute force and ruthlessness and cutthroat deal-making and self-seeking. We gain by being humble and trusting that even if our faith costs us progress now, there's a greater reward on the horizon. Because the meek, not the mighty, the humble, not the high and lifted up, they will be the ones on thrones in the kingdom of God. Caesar, who is that guy? We serve a carpenter that was crucified, don't we? Verse 6. Verse 6 is kind of repeated verse 3, which is, yes, we needed to hear it twice. Blessed are those that hunger and thirst for righteousness. Jesus, we're hungry for money. We're hungry for power. We're hungry for riches untold. We're hungry for wealth and health and prosperity. Jesus, we have hunger for what this world promises. He says, da, da, da. Blessed are those that are hungry and thirsty for what I give them. For they shall be satisfied. I think that's pretty self-explanatory, but... Our souls will not be filled or satisfied by following our fleshly appetites, but only when we seek after more of Jesus. Here's what Jesus is making it clear as he opens up his kingdom. Hey, y'all, you're following me for me. Not for what I might can give you externally, physically, material. Hey, I got something better than that. I've got a nature to give you, a righteousness to give you. I've got a spirit to fill you with. Hey, if you will follow me for more of me, you will be more filled and satisfied than anybody else throughout history. You got to trust me. Gotta trust me. And then he says some other nonsensical stuff. Verse 7. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Jesus, when you show mercy to somebody, they just, they just knock you over. You know, we can't show mercy. He says, hey, blessed are the pure in heart. As in, don't get your hands dirty if you think that's the only way you're going to get ahead. Don't, don't, don't compromise your conscience if you think that's the only way you're going to get what you want. Stay pure, for you will see God. Show mercy, because you need mercy. Stay pure, because you need clarity. Pretty simple, isn't it? Why should you show mercy to people? Because you need mercy. And here's how it works in God's kingdom. If you show it, you'll receive it. If you don't show it, you won't receive it. You want to be able to see God clearly? Stay pure. Stay clean. Stay close. Verse 9 through 12. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Blessed are those that are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and all kinds of evil are said against you or for my you know against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. I mean, Jesus, I didn't come to you because I wanted to be persecuted. I came to you because I never wanted to be persecuted. We want to be the ones persecuting people, right? We don't want to be the ones persecuted. Peacemaking? You know what peacemaking gets you, Jesus? He said, I'll tell you what it gets you. People will look at you and say, you are a child of God. Blessed are you when you're persecuted for yours is the kingdom. When your flesh says fight, the spirit says have peace and make peace. You know what it means? You know what it feels like when your flesh says fight, don't you? You feel it every day, don't you? Your flesh says get even. Your flesh says rub your hands together and do what you got to do. Your flesh says, hey, this isn't right. This isn't fair. This isn't the way it's going to work. The flesh says fight, but the spirit says, hey, you can have peace. You can even make peace. Now, I know that's a lot. 
Good thing we didn't stretch that out across six weeks, right? I know it's a lot. But Jesus gives this rapid-fire sermon. And he doesn't even add the context that we added. And that was intentionally jarring. Hear me. Jesus was being intentionally jarring. You know what jarring means? Like when you run into something, God forbid, in the car, it jars you, right? Or you slam on brakes, it jars you. You weren't expecting that. That's what this sermon was meant for Jesus' original followers. It made them, whoa, what'd you say? But let me, let me talk about this for a minute. You know, I think the jarring for them is different than it is for us. For us, we hear this and we feel like God's trying to hold us back. We hear this and think, oh, oh are you trying to tell me I'm doing life wrong? Because our world operates by all the opposites of these things, right? Our world isn't meek. Our world isn't hum humble. Our world isn't, isn't poor in spirit. Our world says if you do that stuff, you're left behind. But you know how they heard it? They heard it the way you're, they heard it as in the way we're wanting to do life is wrong. Because they weren't living like this, but they were jealous of those that were. He spoke to a crowd of people that were under the heel of Rome. They were 100% poor and broken and downtrodden and with no opportunities. They were persecuted. And here's what Jesus is saying. Y'all think that the way you're living is, is impossible to be blessed, impossible to overcome or endure? I tell you, you're in the prime position. Because you guys don't have this world and you're so far away from the riches of this world. It's easy for y'all to turn to me. People that aren't living in this world might have a different, difficult time. And that's why I think it's so hard for us in our world to understand this. Jesus says, hey, y'all, don't be jealous of Rome. Don't be jealous of the, the, the powerful. There's a better way. There's a better kingdom. For us, we've come up in a different world that even the most unfortunate, under, underprivileged among us uh, have seen better days than these original people. It's jarring to us. It should be jarring to us because it's trying to stop us in our tracks and save us from wasting our lives on a kingdom that has no future. That only takes and wears down. And, and, and listen, the entire reason of those 12 verses is explained in verses 13 through 16. If I can offer, if I can suggest, if there's any verses that you as a Christian need to read every single day of your life, in terms of motivation, in terms of inspiration, it's the verses 13 through 16. We preach on this a lot because it's that important. Jesus says, you know why I'm emphasizing all these kingdom virtues and values? You know why I'm telling y'all this is the way to live? This is the way for true blessings to be found? Because you guys have a job to do in a world that's distracted by other ways. You are the salt of the earth as the world is rotten and the world is decaying and it needs salt to preserve it. They didn't have refrigerators. They had salt and the salt kept the meat from spoiling. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? How shall the world be seasoned or preserved? It's good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put it under a basket on a lampstand and it gives light to those in the house and the city on the hill was a place of a refuge that you, you could trust that, hey, that place has open doors and has a place for me to lay my head down because it's lit up and it's inviting me in. Remember, what did he lead off with his original followers? Follow me and I will make you fishers of men. Listen. This is our purpose. This is our calling. This is our reason. You are the salt 
and the light and the refuge in this world. You, yes you, every one of you are the salt of the earth, the light of the world, refuge for the world, so that the world may see God. Let me say this as clearly as I can. This isn't an option for any of us. This is the reason that any of us wake up every single day. This is why we step into the world. This is why we get to live each day. This is not a burden. We don't have to be salt, light, and refuge. We get to be salt, light, and refuge. The only reason, the only reason this may seem like a burden is if our hearts are still in sync to the wrong kingdom. Right? Now, you read the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus goes on to talk about how Christians are going to be a forgiving people. A content and patient people. A committed and faithful people. He talks about anger, lust, and promise keeping. He says, hey, we're not an angry people. We're a forgiving people. We're not a lustful people. We're a content and patient people. We're not a promise breaking people. We are a committed and faithful people. And then he spends an entire chapter, chapter 6, talking about how we are to be loving people and generous people. And Christians, we don't stand back and demand that people love us and give to us. We ask ourselves, how should I love? What should I give? What does love require of me at home, at work, throughout the week? What should I give? How much should I give? Not what do people, should they give to me? Are they being loving to me? Well, they should be, but my only responsibility is how should I love? What should I give? Now, some of this might sound like too much. For some of us. But you know why that's so? Because we spend way too much time in the name of Jesus focusing on everything but what it means to follow him and reflect him. What it means to be a keeper of his kingdom. People come to me all the time and they say, Justin, you know, hey, let's talk some politics or let's go deep theologically this Sunday. And listen, I'm not going down those rabbit trails in this pulpit. The reason why I keep it simple and the reason why we get so practical it almost gets grating at times is because what we are called to do is follow Jesus and represent Jesus. That's what matters more than anything. You don't go deep. I'll talk to you about stuff that will put you to sleep. Ask Lindsay. Right? She lives with me. She knows what I talk about. But I would never bring this stuff to the pulpit, right? Hey, let's go deep with some crazy theological term. What is that going to do for anybody? Simple, practical, following Jesus. These teachings that Jesus gave that generation apply to every generation. No matter what country we live in, what economic conditions we're in, it's up to us to figure out how to realize it in the world we're in. Because the thing that transcends all of time and has endured throughout history has been his church. And we are positioned every single day to seek his kingdom and keep his kingdom's doors open and accessible and desirable. Now flip over with me as we wrap up to Matthew 16, another familiar passage. Matthew 16, they come to Jesus and they're really hoping that he's about to ramp up some political agenda, some social agenda, because hey, they're, they're wanting to, to, to quit playing these softball games of, of, hey, how should we live in a world that isn't right? I mean, hey, Jesus, why don't you just make things right? 
So he takes them to a place called Caesarea Philippi, a place that Caesar was worshipped as God, a place where the pagan gods were worshipped, and he asked them a question. He says, hey, who do people say that I am? And let me just stop there. That is the question that matters every single Sunday, and that matters every day as you live in this world. He asked them, what is people's understanding of me and relationship with me? In this passage where he asks that question, and they give him all kinds of responses, but Peter, in verse 16 of chapter 16, says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, hey, play the Price is Right music, because you got it right, Peter. Come on down. You know the answer. Of course you know the answer. You've been following me. But Jesus makes it very clear what matters most is people's relationship with Jesus. It's pretty simple. That's the goal. That's the main thing around here. How do people relate to Jesus? What is their relationship with Jesus? And then, as Peter gets it right, he says to Peter in verse 18, he says, I say to you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, as in on your confession, on your proclamation that I am the Son of the living God, the Savior of the world. I am building my church. And that's what will prevent hell from swallowing more and more people. The gates of hell will not prevail against my church that preaches that message. This is who Jesus is. We follow him, follow us as we follow him, as we make him known. That is the calling over us. That is our purpose. We are the church of Jesus Christ, followers of Jesus, making more followers of Jesus. That's our purpose. And Jesus said, hey, if you stick with that, nothing will stop you. And then, verse 19, I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. He gives Peter. He gives the Christians. He gives the church the keys to the kingdom. I said earlier, I hate carrying keys in my pocket because they're so bulky. And I have so many keys to so many buildings and places and doors. It gets a little overwhelming when I have all these keys in my pocket. Every single one of us, every single one of you, have been, have been given the key to the kingdom. The only one that matters. Every single day, we hold the key that is most valuable and most beneficial than any other we can ever get our hands on that opens the door to what we really need and what we want the most. This key, the privilege of that key, it's blessings, it's favor from God. It should weigh on us every single day. It should open our eyes to our calling. You are salt, you are light, you are refuge. We should embrace living under the kingdom principles and values. This key is where our must comes from. Does that make sense? Does it register with you on a daily basis that you have the key to the kingdom and you are able to open the door, unlock the door for somebody that is otherwise lost? I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell will not stop it. 
And I'm going to give every single one of my followers the key to the kingdom. And they have the opportunity to follow me and model for the world what it looks like to be in my kingdom. They are salt. They are light. They are refuge. They are living under different principles, different values, different standards. They are loving and generous. They are content. They are patient. They are faithful. They are committed. They are forgiving. They are pure. They are merciful. They are not after what the world's after. They are different and they stand out and people see me through them and they have the opportunity to win people to Jesus. I tell you, it should weigh on us a great deal every single day. I have a key to the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has given it to me. Just in case it hadn't registered with his disciples all the way. He repeats this message one last time. Right before he ascended to heaven. He defeats the grave. He raises up again. Matthew 28. Verse 16 through 20. If you would turn there with me. He's risen from the dead. They're bewildered. They're overwhelmed. It says the 11 disciples went away to Galilee to the mountain which he had appointed for them. So they're back where it started. They're back at that mountain in Galilee where they first heard those words. You are light. You are salt. You are refuge. Blessed are you who live under these different rules. I love verse 17. When they saw him, they worshipped, but some doubted. Not everybody gets it. It doesn't register with everybody. And he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. As in who's in charge? The guy that just got out of his own grave. The guy that was just bled out on a cross and ruthlessly murdered by Rome. That guy is alive again. That guy is the king of kings. That man is our savior. He has all the authority. So what he says goes above everything else. You think? All authority is mine. Go, therefore. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all the things that I have commanded you. What did I command you? Love, be generous, be committed, be faithful, be pure, be forgiving. Be patient, be content. Teaching them all that I've observed, all that I've commanded you. And lo, I am, or I will be with you always, even to the end of the age, as in this applies to everybody until the end comes. So first, he passes us the keys, he reminds us he's in charge, and expects us to use this sacred role we've been given to play. You know, Christians love to talk about power, you know, the power of God, and it makes you feel good, it makes you able to do all this stuff and get all that you want. Listen, there is no power without the one who has the authority to light the fire. The power that God offers Christians is not for our own leisure or pleasure, but it's for his mission. Every single day, we should be mindful of this sacred mission. I'll give you three things to wrap it all up. We are keepers of his kingdom. We have the keys to his kingdom. As Jesus followers, we should be multipliers. Pretty simple, isn't it? What did this all start out with? Follow me, 
and I will make you fishers of men. And he teaches them how they'll become that, didn't he? He says, okay, guys, let me tell you how I'm going to make you this. You're going to have to be humble. <laughs> what, Jesus? Humble, patient, loving, generous, merciful. He says, hey, you want to become father? You want to become fishers of men? Hey, you're following me. I gotta, it's, it might take some work. This is where I'm taking you. Follow me. I'll make you into something. This is what it means to be salt, light, and refuge. This is what it means to be the light of the world, the salt of the earth, the refuge on a hill for those that are in need and those that are weary. You have been given the keys of the kingdom. Make disciples. I don't think it can get more simple than that, can it? You want to know what the church is called to do, who we're called to be, what we're called to do? How specific he is. We're, we make disciples. We see them enter into a covenant relationship with the church. They follow us as we follow the Lord just like we've covered today. As we celebrate our country this week, as we won't be able to get away from all the pomp and circumstance, I gotta ask you, how often do you think about God's kingdom? How often do you think about how you are a keeper of his kingdom? You have the keys to his kingdom. Your salt, light, and refuge. You represent him, you reflect him. Are we living by these kingdom virtues? Do we know what life is like under his reign, in his realm, so that we can make him known, so that we can lead others to him? I guess it all comes down to one last question. Is Jesus our king? Because if he's our king, our good and loving and merciful king, then we understand why all this matters. But here in Matthew 28, some worshiped and some doubted. And today... All these years later, some will worship, some will doubt. Some will think, hey, does this really apply to me? I don't know. Some will fall on their face in front of God and say, I want all that you have for me, and I want to be a good keeper of your kingdom. I want to know what these keys are worth, and I want to make use of them. Whether you worship or doubt, you've heard these words. We are accountable to these words. Our minds might wonder but we should focus on him and adore him. The question, adore him. The question is, what will you do? You are a keeper of his kingdom. You have a great purpose. You have a purpose every single day to be light and salt and refuge. It starts at home. It starts at work. It goes from beyond there. Every single moment of every single day, you are a keeper. You have the keys. What are you doing with that great opportunity? Let's make the most of it. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, this message hits me more than it, before it hits anybody else. I realize with a position like mine, this is more important for me to understand than anybody. But all of us have heard your words today. All of us have heard the, these commandments today. We understand the reason behind it all. That we have been given the keys to the kingdom. We know that Jesus is the Savior of the world. We understand this world cannot save us. It will not be our forever home. We know there's a future that's, that's beyond our own ability to get there. We have the answer to, of how to get there. And our job is to help other people see that. Lord, help it to become that simple in all of our minds. I'm sure some will doubt today. Some will make excuses. Some will wonder if this is something that they even should apply in their own lives. But Lord, let us all just come before you and fall down before you and realize that there's no greater fulfillment, there's no greater satisfaction, there's no greater life than one spent serving you. 
a life of love, a life of generosity, a life of purity, a life of mercy, a life of being light and salt and refuge, just like you have saved us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.